Romans 15, verse 13. Let's read this together as soon as I find it. All right, let's read together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered on Christmas Eve, on the joyous occasion, the night before the day where the world celebrates the birth of Jesus. And we pray that as we gather, that we would sense your presence, Lord, that as we gather, we through the words of Scripture, would rekindle our hearts to the joy, the peace, the hope that comes in the incarnation of God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in the Nativity. And so, Lord, uh, speak to us. Incline our hearts toward you, and we pray that uh, you would infuse in us the joy that we should have as Christians. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. And I mean, in in many ways, it is. And if it isn't in your heart, it should be. So I told you all um, last week, I I like everything about Christmas. I mean, I like a lot of it, almost a lot, you know, except for the shopping. I I don't dislike shopping. Uh, I tolerate the shopping uh, because sometimes you have to go shopping. And so, I mean, last week, this time, we had no gifts under our tree. I mean, Santa Claus had done nothing. And so we had to get, we had to get busy. So, so uh, my wife and I did what parents do uh, when you have no gifts under the tree. We started ordering some stuff from Amazon.com. But a few things you, gotta, a few things you actually got to go to the store and get. And so we took, when I mean, we got gathered, all the family together. David was out with his friends doing whatever friends do with David. So the rest of us, we went to the mall. And uh, I have to admit, I mean, after getting parked, it was actually a, f- a fun trip because we started at Ann Pizza, and, and we, we got our hearts filled with some good food, and then we went and did a little bit of shopping. And uh, it was encouraging to see the, the smiles on people's faces and a little bit of joy and just the energy, at least at Springfield Mall, amongst those who were, who were Christmas shopping. And... Uh, I have to admit, there were a couple of cashiers and a few people in the stores that you could tell they were just like famished, just like like they couldn't take anymore. And so I tried to be a little encouraging to them. And I have to admit, behind some of the smiles that I saw, I, I did sort of wonder, so what's this person going to be like after Christmas? And I don't mean like a week or, after, you know, like New Year's. I mean, like, you know that feeling you get after you've opened your last gift? It's like, oh my God, that's it. There's nothing else. I don't have any more gifts under the tree. Or, or perhaps, like, uh, of course, the, the week after when the, the festivities are over, the, all the food's eaten, your pa- parents are gone home, all that stuff. I mean, what happens after all that stuff has died down and the gift that you really love, the, the novelty of it wears off, and all you got left is to think that, man... I guess life is going to have to keep going on. I think for many people, Christmas is the most wonderful time of year. It is a special time, especially if you're a Christian and we celebrate the, the birth of Jesus. But for many, it can be incredibly artificial. Uh, it's, it's a bit like going to the dentist. Um, for those of you who lack dental hygiene, I'm going to remind you of what it's like to go to the dentist. Um, so I had a root canal last month, and I had to go not one but twice, actually three times to the dentist for my my root canal procedure. And this is how it is when you go to the dentist. I mean, they, they sort of, they're very nice to you as you come in the door. The receptionists are 
gregarious and nice and friendly. They have you sit down in their music playing reception area and they call your name, Jeff, it's your turn to come on back. You go back and uh, they politely seat you in one of those plastic seats that recline that like stick to you regardless of what you're, what you're wearing. And, uh, and then depending on what procedure you're having, either you're going to get one of the, the hygienists that's coming and going to clean your teeth or in my case, they gave me, um, they, they created small talk, gave me a, a topical to numb me so they could get, then come in with a needle and, and really numb me. And then, of course, that's all to uh, let the stuff that has to happen, like j- drilling into my tooth and all that. And so, I mean, I, I'm not opposed to dental work. I, I don't get all freaked out about it and, and all that. And hopefully you don't either. But here's what happens when you get dental work. Um, your, your mouth is numb. Hopefully you get through the procedure. You're leaving. You can't talk a little bit. You got to be careful that you don't bite your tongue off. But for the most part, you get through it until about a couple hours later when that numbness starts to dissipate and all of a sudden the pain of all the things that Dennis has done in your mouth starts to come alive. In other words, life, the pain of life starts to happen. And I think that's one of two reactions that many of us have in regards to, to Christmas. For many, Christmas is, I mean, it's an opportunity to fake it, isn't it? I mean, you pretend like you actually like everybody in your family. You pretend like your life is okay. You pretend like, um, you know, you give the impression that all is well, that there's hope in your life for your future and everybody else's future as well. But, but here's the thing, at least in, in my history there is, once the lights are turned out, you take your Christmas decorations down, all the gifts are put up, you return a few of those gifts that you got. Uh, perhaps all the food is eaten, even the leftovers. All your family members have gone home. I mean, there's, there's still life to live. And you realize that all the problems that you faced before Christmas have not magically disappeared. The broken relationships haven't gotten fixed. The bills that you had before Christmas, Lord God, haven't gone away. In fact, they probably multiplied and have become more unmanageable because of the things you did over the Christmas holidays. That's the first perspective. And, and, and here's the second. The second is a little bit better because it's supposed to be the Christian perspective. But the truth is, a lot of times, those of us who are Christians don't have a better perspective of what Christianity and what Christ, Christmas for the Christian uh, is. It should be different, but sometimes it's not. But it should be. And there are countless ways that Christmas should be different, but let me just mention three. For those who know and follow Jesus, there should be an abiding joy that no amount of family discord, that no amount of financial pressure can undermine. For those who know and follow Jesus, there should be a peace inside of you, just a tranquility of your soul that no turmoil in the world can upend. And for those of us that know and follow Jesus, there should be hope. Hope that everything that God has promised us in his word is actually going to be fulfilled by the one that promised it. That's what we should be celebrating. That should be our perspective of Christmas. And of course, I'm not making it up. Those are just my words. Those aren't my words. They're they're words that I'm editing from the Apostle Paul because that's what he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is a prayer. It's a prayer at the, almost the tail end 
of a very theological book that Paul wrote, just teaching us about the good news of Jesus coming, dying in our place for our sin. And it's appropriate prayer for Paul to give because we've been talking about hope during our Advent celebration. But more importantly, it's a a good prayer for us to think about during Christmas. And so in this prayer, Paul is describing what we should espouse as Christians, what, what we should believe, what we should yearn for. He is describing really the values that we should embrace as the people of God. This prayer is it's really the gospel. It's, it's all about good news. And he's declaring to the world, here's what can be found in Jesus Christ. And he names three things, joy, peace, and hope. These are, I mean, these are common words. If I had ask anybody in the room, you'd probably be able to give me a very good definition of joy, peace, and hope. But what does Paul mean when he talks about these in the midst of this very theological book that he wrote? First, he talks about joy. Um, think about, I mean, just think, of, imagine, let your mind go. What are all the things that bring you joy? I was talking to, uh, uh, to Nick and Jen, and Jen's twin sister just had her first baby little girl, and I can just imagine uh, Jen's sister and her husband and the family surrounding them. When you first learn that you're pregnant, you, you have the, the nine, actually the ten months of waiting, and, and really, regardless of, of how you deliver the baby, whether it's a natural birth, you get an epidural, or if it's a cesarean birth, regardless of the pain that you go through, at the end of that is this bundle of joy, boy or girl, Um, And, I mean, you just have instant joy that you don't have to manufacture. It's just there because that's how God intended for it to be. For some of you, joy is when you get off work early and you don't expect it. I mean, don't you just want to, like, do a dance when that happens? Uh, For some people, joy is... Is your favorite sports team winning, like the like the Philadelphia Eagles crushing uh, the who did they beat? The Giants last Thursday night football. I mean, who expected that? And all the Cowboys fans said, "Yes, Lord, Amen." I'm not a Cowboys fan. For me, here's joy. It's digging into like my favorite ice cream. I found some Giant brand ice cream, just a knockoff, but it's like the best tasting eggnog ice cream that I've had all season, and that's what I'm gonna enjoy after this service is over. In the Bible, here's what joy means. It means gladness or great happiness. It's, it's all those things that God has done for us. It's not just surface topical stuff. It's not an event. Joy is associated with who God is and what he's done for us in totality as the people of God. In the Old Testament, it was Israel's experience of, of deliverance from 400 years of slavery, of being subjected by masters to their beckon and call. And then as they wandered in the wilderness and eventually went into the land that God had prepared for them, it was their anticipation of God saving them over and over and over again. And, and here's the, what's special about that. Although they would not do what God said that they should do because of God's covenant with them, he continued to tell them, hey, I, I, I love you, I love you. I love you, and my love for you isn't dependent upon what you do. It's because of the covenant that I'm going to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And that refrain was the impetus for all the feasts and the temple and all the celebrations they had. They had joy because of who they knew God to be in their midst. In the New Testament, joy was wrapped up in the coming of the Messiah. It was the anticipation that he was going to come and be their deliverer, saving them from all those things that they 
that, that, that upended their lives. And eventually it was God incarnating himself in the person of Jesus, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And that baby would grow up, live a perfect life, and he would deliver his people from their sins, forgiving them. And then he would bring salvation to all those that he's calling to himself. In other words, joy is epitomized in our celebration of Advent. And this joy isn't supposed to be a superficial level of happiness. It's experiential. It's a spiritual taste of the glory of Jesus, much like what we remember from Luke chapter 2. That's joy. The reaction of uh, the, the angels to the thing that God said was going to happen, and of course the shepherds being the first humans to experience that, the angels telling them that this has happened, and their reaction, and then actually going to see this Christ child in the manger, that is an expression of joy. That's what true joy is. It's deep, durable delight in the splendor of God that utterly ruins us for anything else. This is uh, uh, Sam Storm's rendition of, of joy, and I love it because um, it's, it's not the normal thing we would read about the definition of joy. Simply, joy is delight in who God is. And it's such a delight, such an affection, such um, an attraction to who God is based upon what he's done that nothing else satisfies you. You can try some other things, you can do some other things, but it's that joy that you keep coming back to and that drives your life. That's the joy that the Bible commends to us. And I like how Dr. Storms adds two qualifiers to it. He says, this joy is deep. That means it's not superficial. It doesn't just scratch the surface of your soul. And then he says, it's durable. In, in other words, there's nothing that's going to be able to turn you over and, and ruin your life when hardship comes your way. It's going to survive the worst of circumstances that life can bring your way. Real joy, as the Bible describes it, flourishes in the midst of suffering. And as much as we want to, we just can't manufacture real joy. I mean, you can't. You can't make yourself joyous. True, spiritual, biblical joy is not the product of your human will, nor of you responding to a good circumstance. Otherwise, those that win the lottery those that are affluent and have big houses and cars and land would be the most joyous people on our earth. But you know some of them, and they're not. Joy is not even being affluent and paying your bills and, and having a good family. Because you are those people, and some of us in this room don't have joy. And that's why Paul says this. He says, Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22. God has to gift it to you. And that's, what Paul, that's why Paul asks for God in this prayer to generate it in our hearts. So that's joy. And then he says peace. A lot of times we, the New Testament really talks about peace in two ways. The first way is an objective kind of peace. It's the peace that God gives us when Jesus lives perfectly, dies in our place for our sin on the cross. That's a peace that we, we, we've been reconciled to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that we are enemies of God because of our sin. A holy God 
will, uh, will not allow unholy people, his creation, to convene with him. And so there has to be a mediator. And so God bridges the gap with Jesus, sending him into our world to, to live as we do, to eat our food, walk our roads, wear our clothes. And by God's plan, he goes to the cross in our place for our sin. That's objective. That's objective peace. This piece here that Paul's talking about is, is different, and it's strange for Paul because he doesn't talk like this very often. This is a subjective piece. It's like squishy. I mean, you know, Paul doesn't do that. This is like an internal, um, subjective, experiential kind of peace. It's a state of mind, but also uh, a state of your spirit where you have confidence that God is going to, he's going to answer every promise in the Bible. It's a restful assurance that there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. That's the peace that God wants to give you. And he gives us that at Christmas. It's the kind of peace that says, you know what, there's some freaky natural disasters going on in our world right now. And I'm no respective person. There, there, there's something that could take me out very easy, like that, that weird hurricane that came through uh, North Carolina and like put sunken holes right in the middle of, uh, of roads, right in pe- front of people's houses. But it says, even with that, nothing can separate me from the love of God. It's, it's a peace that says, Terrorism is very near to us. There's been four terrorist attacks in our world just this week. And again, we're not special that we could not be subject to one of those. But it says a terrorist may come and decimate me, take my head off, kill me or anyone in my family. But that's not enough to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's a piece that says I may have an incurable disease that comes and ravages my body, like cancer, or, or someone that I love dearly, but it's not enough to separate me from the love of Christ that's in Christ Jesus. It says, I may have a family, a, a, a relationship in my family, a spouse or other, that's, that's near separation. That they're just, the person's just going to walk away, never to return again. But it's a peace that God gives us that says there's nothing even the hardest of things that can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Paul continues by telling us, joy and peace are both the fruit of believing. Believing in Jesus, the person and his work. Believing that God has promised things to us in Scripture and what he's promised he's going to fulfill. Believing that God has the power to do the very things that he's promised to us. The joy and peace are fruit of believing, which in turn yields hope. We aren't a very hopeful people right now. Uh, I was doing some Wikipedia work. Our country is 240 years old. 222 of those, we've been at war in some way or another. Obviously, we've been in direct combat uh, in the Middle East since uh, 2003. Um, I mean, that's, that's just a lot, of, a lot of war and a lot of times that we can think that, I mean, is there hope for our world? The world, as I said before, has seen four terrorist-related attacks just this week. Uh, we just got through a, uh, a divisive presidential election that, I mean, it continues to, to separate us. And we haven't even gotten to the inauguration yet. And you would think that um, just pressing forward and just just going forward would 
remove us from some of the lack of hope that we feel, but I think all of us feel a little bit of the pressure to think that the future is, is kind of bleak. And as Christians, those of us who God puts it in us to have hope, I, I think we lack hope just the same. I think it's true of Christians, we lack hope because we've been duped into putting our our, our focus on things that can't really bring us hope. We give confidence to those things that have no hope in them in themselves. We hope for a good paying job when we graduate. We hope that uh, our husband will one day wake up and uh, you know get with it spiritually or get off the couch. We hope that we have enough money to cover next month's car payment. And obviously, those that's, we need to do some of that stuff, right? And if you're affected in those ways, I mean, there's, there, there are some ways that we need to hope. We need to want those kinds of things. But here's the one thing that's wrong with all of those. They aren't eternal. They, they can't save you. And when you put your hope in those things happening and thinking that life is going to be happily ever after after that, you're going to be disappointed because at some point that thing is going to fail you. In the end, what Paul is commending to us is that we all need Jesus. Jesus should be the object and the focus and the obsession of our hope. And God gives us hope at Christmas in the form of Jesus. Notice I said he gives us. He gives us hope in the Christ child at Christmas because ultimately hope is beyond our ability to produce. I mean, we just can't like joy. We can't manufacture it. We can't conjure it up at the moment that we need it. And Paul points out the fact that there is no hope for hope in God unless the Holy Spirit blesses us with the very hope that we need as Christians. God gives us the power to hope. It's not in your willpower or your good intentions or the New Year's resolution you're going to make next week before you come into church on Sunday. None of that stuff is going to bring you hope, although those things can move you forward a little bit. The Holy Spirit has to help us. The Spirit alone awakens and sustains genuine hope in your heart. And so let me, let me finish this by saying, it's Christmas. It is the most wonderful time of year. It's wonderful because just culturally, it, is, it really is fun. The shopping and the eggnog and the, the food and the relatives and the decorations and all that, it's meant to give us uh, to, to cause us to have fun, to, to revel in the, the camaraderie of family and friends. But, oh, by the way, it is a time that we remember the birth of Jesus, God incarnate. But we also should remember, I mean, this, this, I mean, Christmas itself isn't your hope. Let me be real with you for a second. Um, some of y'all are going to have to pretend. Some of y'all got family visiting, and you may be displeased with that family member. And so you might have to pretend a little bit, and I will tell you it's okay to have peace in your home if you have to pretend. Some of you may have a lousy Christmas because either you're going to give a present that the person that's going to be a recipient isn't going to like, or you may be the recipient of a present. I mean, you may really, really want something, and you don't get it. Or like many of us, Santa, a.k.a. Amazon Prime, has let you down. And what you really needed to show up before 5 o'clock tonight did not. And it's going to, in turn, come next Wednesday on the 28th. You know how I know that? Absolutely. Let me finish on a good note. Here's the indescribably good news for those of us who know and follow Jesus. Our God is a source of hope. 
and he is unsparing and lavish in his desire to fill you with joy and peace this Christmas. And that's just not a, a thing that God does for us at Christmas. He promises to do that every time you open up this word of God. He's going to infuse you with hope as you read his word, trust in the person of Jesus, know that these words are for you and his promises he will, he will not, um, he will not um, fail to fulfill. And as you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you joy and peace and hope, he's going to give you those things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And for those of us in this room that aren't experiencing that wonder, I pray that, uh, that you perform a miracle, not under the Christmas tree, not in their wallet, but in their heart. Would you give us the Holy Spirit? And Holy Spirit, would you uh, incline us to Jesus? Would you show us the, the, the miracle of his birth and then put in us the fruit of the Spirit, which include joy and peace? And God, we pray for those things because it's not in us to conjure them up. We can't, get, we can't make ourselves be happy even if we wanted to. Things don't make us happy, not a lasting happiness. And so Jesus, happy birthday. We love you. This, this, this season is really about you. And, and even amidst all the commercialism, Lord, we, we pray that you would, in our hearts, for those in this room and for Transit Church, that would make you uh, the reason for this season. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen and amen. Um, typically, we do communion to celebrate the good news of, of, of God coming and dying in our place for our sin. But what a special opportunity for us to think about the good news of God coming as coming in flesh as a baby, living a, a perfect life, and then going to the cross in our place for our sin. And so as we celebrate communion, um, Christmas is good news for us. It's good news for those of you who have been in Christ and are celebrating not just Christmas, but, but Jesus and, and his birth. And it's good news for those of you here who perhaps don't have a relationship with Jesus uh, and the opportunity that, that he presents you to get to know him and to confess your sin and be forgiven and to come into a relationship with with God, the God that comes in flesh at Christmas.